At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thursdays are newsy days in Northeast Ohio, but today is going to be a big one. And Jane Cahoon is going to be working very long again, like she did yesterday. Jane Cahoon, I think all the news comes through you. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with the aforementioned Jane Cahoon and Chris Wernowski and Laura Johnston. Jane, I hope you got a lot of sleep last night. Wouldn't you know, I like woke up in the middle of the night and I couldn't get back to sleep. So I was, I was thinking, oh, did I make that to-do list? You know, and then I got up in the middle of the night and made a to-do list and went back to bed and, oh, it, it wasn't well, good. You, you are the guardrail against shenanigans <laughs> by the lame duck legislators on the final day when they always sneak all their nonsense through. I so we'll hate count when on they you. do this. I am a morning person, not a night person. And as I said before, this is no way to do the public's business. <laughs> but it is if you want to do sleazy things. Yeah. So we're going to count on you and your staff's vigilance. And we're going to try and give you some help today. Unlike yesterday, when you pretty much edited everything on our website. <laughs> Let's begin. Why is the Cleveland Post Office such a mess of delays and why won't anyone there talk about it? Laura Johnston, this is a, a national scope problem. The post office has been pretty much crippled by budget cuts and things. But there's something about Cleveland. I mean, when you rank them all, we look very badly by comparison to all the ones that are performing badly. What's going on there? Yeah, in the, um, I guess, from July through October, so the third quarter of the year, we were the third worst in the country, according to their own data, on delivering two-day packages on time. I think it was about 78%. And the sixth worst for uh, three to five days, we were at 65%. And so that was the third quarter of the year when we didn't really hear a ton of complaints. And now all of a sudden it's December and everybody's mailing everything. And people are like, where where's my mail? Where are my packages? So um, we uh, sent John Coons, our photographer, to go take pictures of trucks lining up outside the post office. Apparently they're sitting there for hours, if not days. And there's no, there's not a lot of explanation for what's going on. The spokeswoman will not answer our questions. They keep sending these national press releases that tell people to mail their packages early. But all we've gotten out of them is, you know, coronavirus has caused some problems with absences if, if mail carriers or people who work inside the building are getting sick. And we don't really know when the delays are going to be fixed. We just know that if you ask anybody, they will tell you, yes, I have something stuck. I've been tracking my package and it's just sitting there. Well, I don't know who the postmaster is now, but whoever it is, is doing an abysmal job of communicating. We used to have postmasters in town that would talk a bit about what's going on. And you're right. The the frustration is they can see on the tracking that they paid for that it's just sitting there day after day after day. And the people that run it refuse to be held accountable for it. It's ridiculous. I mean, I, I just it's inexcusable. And I'm a little bit surprised that the members of our congressional delegation aren't starting to step it up. You know, Marsha Fudge and Sherrod Brown and Rob Portman. Where are they in, in getting this thing to move? Because 
Christmas is going to be hard enough for people because of the plague year. <laughs> you would think that getting the cookies and presents from grandma would would be a simple thing to to make happen if you were in Congress because you have the power to do it. I don't know, Jane Cahoon, you got way too much on your plate today, but maybe we could get some. Oh, Sabrina yeah, we'll get Eaton. that done, Chris. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> we did reach out. I mean, we tried calling Marsha Fudge. We tried calling some city council members, which basically said, this is not our problem. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, you're right. We're not getting a lot of answers. We're going to try to go through the union today and, and try to keep getting answers from people. But yeah, in the meantime, it's just. It's a little late at this point to say mail stuff early. It took eight days from my Christmas card to get to from my house in Rocky River to Shaker Heights. So eight Which days. Is, that's just ridiculous. But, you know, getting back to the congressional delegation, our, our mailboxes, email boxes, not our postal mail, because that wouldn't come, fill up with nonsense from our two senators. <laughs> Where are they on this? You know, Rob Portman sends us something every day. Rob Portman spoke at a hearing today Multiple and said blah, blah, blah. <laughs> oh, I know. It's like it's like spam at this point. But this is an important service that they could get involved in. So, well, can I can I ask a question? And by the way, I, I got your Christmas card, Laura. Thank you. Oh, um, good. <laughs> I don't know how Me long too. it took. You know, we we talked about this before the election. You know that we had pictures of them. Uh, you know, of some dismantled equipment outside of one of the post offices, and and. Is there any chance? And and I know this is a little tinfoil hat, but is there any chance that this slowdown also impacted the election in any any conceivable way? I mean, it's anything's possible. Yeah. Okay. I I mean, I'm just curious about that because it's like I think they halted those, you know, some of those cuts and everything. But I think some of them maybe had already been implemented where, you know, where they put machines out of commission and Mm -hmm. stuff. So you do have to wonder. Yeah, I, I just it's 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 interesting because it's like this this suddenly became a problem because everybody can't get their Christmas presents. But we never talked about I mean, we did talk about it a little bit, but, you know, we're we we just had this election. And, and you know, is has anybody looked into the into whether mail was slowed during this and whether, you know, it I remember it, people. But remember, Chris, we did deal with it. I mean, mm-hmm. people mailed their stuff early because they were petrified about not having them counted. So. The or they fears of to the board. Are they right? So I, I mean, I, I don't think there was a problem because the word got to people that they needed to do it. There hasn't been that kind of publicity about the bumbling. Now, the people I feel the worst for are the neighborhood mail carriers because they're great, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they do great work. They show up every day, and yet they're the face of the post office, and so I'm sure they're catching some not nice words and it's too bad because this is much more a management problem but it's a big problem and so it's time for the congress people to get off their butts and fix it you're listening to this week in the cle why does ohio governor mike dewine say that americans should feel good about all the shenanigans that took place to overturn the election of joe biden as president jane coon we had our long talk with him yesterday and we asked him are you bothered by all of the stuff that has happened since the election. You had said before the election, we have a great tradition in this country. The loser always goes away. We always have a peaceful transition of power. But since the election, there have been a lot of shenanigans. Are you concerned about that? And he walked right up to saying he was really bothered by it. (laughs) And then he, right as he was about to say it, wow, he's going to say something. He pivoted and said, well, we should feel good about it. What's the logic there? Yeah. And you asked the question in a very pointed way. And as I said, I think he even started to say the word 
troubled, but maybe maybe he said, oh, he was troubled by the division in the country. But then you're right. He just pivoted and said, hey, you know, uh, you you said the, the the history books would judge us, you know, by coming close to like losing our democracy here. And he pushed back on that pretty hard. He said, nope, I think that's a fantasy. I think the history books are going to say that our system worked exactly as it was supposed to. And then he did. He's he's mentioned the Supreme Court and the fact that Trump named, you know, has three appointees on that court, yet they dismissed his um, his uh, lawsuits. So, you know, he he basically seems like a big believer in in our system. Uh, and uh, yeah, so he yeah. I, and he's right. The institutions work. The election was as as well run as any election we've ever had, in spite of huge challenges of covid and all the sinister attacks by the president on the integrity of it. And the courts did rebuff all of the ridiculous claims that there was fraud, but it wouldn't have taken much to do right, it. And, you, know, right. you still have one more day. And, you know, now we've got that, that Republican Senator in Georgia saying she may be the Senator that says she votes the wrong way to, to, to put the, monkey wrench in the electoral college on january 6th we could still have a mess in january yeah, 6th we could. the institution does fail right um, he didn't uh, you know. i don't think he mentioned the institution of congress he said there are there are two real institutions two things that we do in this country pretty damn well one is run elections and the other is we have a court system that is a truth finder he said neither is perfect but by and large they they work and people have confidence but can in I- them. Can I throw a ridge in this really quick? Because, yeah, we we managed to squeak through this. But I I would argue that that our elections did not work as well as they could have. And the fact that that these things have been challenged are evidence of the fact that that the way that these elections were carried out were done so in a way that caused a lack of faith in the system. So, you know, you have long lines in Georgia. You have people who have have question the reliability of mail-in voting, you know, stuff like there were things that we could have done that could have made this election a lot easier and a lot less questionable on the back end. And then to say that, you know, easy breezy, everything's fine. It's like, but not really like, like well, all of- he, what, he just, what he said was in the end, those two institutions work. The election by and large worked and the courts by and large worked. And, you know, but where I guess, I guess where I'm, I have a little bit of trouble with what he's saying is that we didn't come close. He, he's saying, look, the institutions are there. They worked. The Republic is safe. And I, I think a lot of people looking at what's happened would think, well, we yeah. almost, it almost didn't work. Well, but he's also not looking ahead at what, what this is going to do to American confidence in the, in the election system. I, you know, I feel like it, it took a big hit. I think we managed to get through this one because of a wildly unpopular president and, you know, and, and a a legitimate fear of oligarchy or, you know, whatever we were headed toward. You know, I, I think, I, you know, I think whatever success there is in this election can be attributed to, I think a legitimate fear of that. And, well, and to say that the system worked is it, it, it sort of ignores the fact that there are problems with the system that still need to be addressed. And well, no, you know, he, didn't, he didn't, he didn't say that. He said there, there are problems. They do make mistakes from time to time. All he was saying, 
look, I'm telling you, he came so close. He said, am I troubled? And he started to, to clearly, I think he was going to say, yeah, I'm troubled by some of this. And, and he stopped himself. He just stopped himself short and said, well, you know, I'm troubled by the divisions, like Jane said. And then he went into, but the institutions ultimately protected it. So uh, it, it was just, you no, I mean, he, he is the governor and his voice means a lot, but let's not forget we have other Ohio politicians who are still pushing these falsehoods, like former Congressman Jim Renacci, who might run against DeWine in two years, and people like Ken Blackwell, who's prominent on the national stage, our former Secretary of State, who, who thinks that Trump's congressional strategy just might work and said so. Uh, it's, you know, it's, oh, still, well. <laughs> it's still worrisome. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley agree to exactly to reduce the county jail population without exposing the prison system to needless coronavirus risk? Chris Wernowski, we we reported a day or so ago that they'd come to an agreement, but uh, but Mike DeWine kind of laid out a six point agreement that that gave us the details. What were they? Right. So uh, yesterday when you guys spoke to DeWine, he he basically said that that he got a phone call from uh, Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley um, to see if there was a way that they could, uh, you know, alleviate some of the, the issues that were gumming up the ability for county jails to transfer inmates out of the jail into the prison system after they've been convicted of crimes. Our jail is currently in the middle of uh, an explosion of coronavirus cases. And, and the governor said, you know, look, I, I'm concerned about what's happening with you and I'm concerned uh, with any problem in the state. I'm the governor of the whole state, not just the governor of DRC. And so they sort of discussed removing some of the there was this issue of quarantining on it, it, that the county actually filed a lawsuit against the state to help address and that they managed to sort of come to an agreement on, which was requiring people to quarantine on both ends of the system after they had tested negative for the coronavirus. So if you had the coronavirus and you tested negative and you were supposed to go to prison, you'd have to quarantine at the county jail for 14 days. Then you'd have to quarantine at the jail for 14 days. And they think they've, they've changed that to be about, I think it's like 10 days now on one end of it. And, and so what they, what they think is that's going to help sort of move people out of county jails quicker into the state system. But it's it's still a problem in the jail, and and and, and like Dewine said, there this is this doesn't fix the problem, but it does give them what he thinks is some breathing room to kind of you know hopefully get the numbers under control. We'll we'll see by the end of the week whether this has any impact or you know within the next week or so. I would say if if this is starting to help the jail numbers go down a little bit. It is odd that Mike O'Malley, as the county prosecutor, would be negotiating this, except for the fact that he did file the lawsuit. To, to try and get it fixed. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just a little bit, you would think that the people responsible for the jail, the county administration, the Armand mm-hmm. Budish administration would do it. But, but Mike was working with the sheriff, right? This was all. Right. And, and remember there, there, there was that move that they made also to release people who were serving time on misdemeanors and, and, and they were, you know, the state had sort of granted them permission to let out people who were being held on parole violations. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, of the, I think more than 1200 people that are in the jail, that's going to result in the release of maybe, you know, 50 to a hundred people. But 
you know, which is which is something. But it, it's it's it, remember we we managed to get the jail population out of like nine hundred at the beginning of the pandemic, and you know that number has gone up. And 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 I guess you know you know part of that is because we have had like a lot of you know a, a sort of not unprecedented, but it's, you know, unprecedented in recent years level of violence in, in our community as a result of a number of things that have caused, you know, a lot of violent people to be put in, people who are accused of violent crimes uh, being put in jail right now. So, you know, those are people that the prosecutor and the judges don't want to let back out on the street, you know, but what they're saying is, is that the people that we want in the jail right now are the people that need to be in the jail right now. And, right. and then the okay. idea is to get the people that don't need to be there out of the jail. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We've talked about whether Ohio's coronavirus numbers have plateaued, but are they suddenly dropping? Jen Kuhn, we're starting to see signs that, that Ohio may have crested, but you don't want to say that almost because you don't want to jinx it because <laughs> today's numbers could take us into the stratosphere. What seems to be going on with the coronavirus trends in Ohio? Well, a word of caution. We we once again have a caveat here because of murky data, but we did see a comparatively low number of new coronavirus cases on Wednesday, 5,409, and that's over 3,000 cases below Tuesday's count, which was over 8,700 new cases. And both of those days are below the 21-day rolling average of about 9,600 cases a day. It, and it was also the lowest case number for a single day since November 9th. However, the Ohio Department of Health said that the case counts may be lower, quote, due to technical difficulties. So honestly, I don't know if that means, you know, we're going to see 20,000 cases today or or what it means. They did they weren't specific about that. So we'll so we'll just have to see. I we did talk the other day about how it looks like we're on a plateau. It's a very high plateau, but you know, we will see. Now, the bad news we got uh, on Wednesday is that for the second consecutive week, we had a record number of coronavirus deaths involving patients of nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. Uh, Wednesday saw a report of 286 more deaths, which is easily, um, that easily topped the record of 212 that they reported a week ago. And so far, we've got 4,361 known coronavirus deaths involving long-term care patients this year. Which I I guess you could say the death number cresting now, getting higher now, follows with what you'd expect from the increase in hospitalizations, which followed the surge, right? I mean, we've talked repeatedly about how hospitalizations come a bit after the big numbers and then deaths follow that. Right. Um, they, they, there's a lag in, in reporting of the deaths. I, I mean, we won't be able, we need hindsight to be able to know where we stand, but it would be nice if that feeling that we may have crested is true. The rest of the nation is, is going bonkers. And everybody mentions Ohio because they're, they're looking back to that day where they unloaded all of those extra ones. Remember when we had, what, 27,000 yes. or something? Right. And they're looking at that as a sign without looking at the facts behind it. But but we here in Ohio are looking at it going, hmm, Rich Exner's done very good work on this. And he's going to be off for a couple of weeks. So we got, we're not going to have anybody <laughs> to tell us whether, whether the trend is ending. And there's, well, uh, yeah. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. No one seems to be flying through it. 
because of all sorts of factors. But the Akron Canton Airport got some much needed love this week. Laura Johnston, the Akronite, what was the, the <laughs> honor they got? So TSA named them a 2020 Airport of the Year for its size category, in part because of their efforts inside their local group to improve the workplace during this very challenging year of coronavirus. So the TSA is, of course, the Transportation Security Administration, and their team of 70 officers at CAK helped launch this campaign called It Starts With Me, and it stressed personal responsibility and accountability in the workplace. It centered on improving customer service and the work environment. And uh, There were three other airports that got this designation chosen by size. The others are George Bush International in Houston, Eugene Airport in Oregon, and Miami in Florida. Is it easy to improve customer service when you have no customers? (laughs) (laughs) I am sure it's easier when you're not dealing with irate passengers yelling at you about things. But it sounds like they were also, you know, the workplace culture that they're, you know, working together, you know, better with them, too. Yeah, it's it was nice to see. I, I mean, Akron Canton has really taken it on the chin since United pulled its hub out of Cleveland and a lot of other airlines that had been flying into Akron had moved. And so they're, they've been struggling. That would had been a thriving airport until then. At, yeah, at one point it had been like the fastest growing airport in the country for years. And then all of a sudden, you know, AirTran merged with Southwest and United happened and the bottom kind of just fell out. So some good news there. It's this week in the CLE. Why is Amazon chief Jeff Bezos's divorce proving fortunate for some vital charities in greater Cleveland? Chris Ranowski, this story has all sorts of fun elements. It's got the celebrity culture gossip element. It's got the great news for some very important nonprofits that are doing God's work during this plague. Uh, what's going on? Yeah, and it's got my favorite thing, wealth worship. I love it. Uh, <laughs> now, Mackenzie Scott, the former wife of of Uber near trillionaire Jeff Bezos, uh, had announced that she was donating, I think, like, like $4.2 billion to 384 organizations that help the less fortunate. Uh, here in Northeast Ohio, she is giving money to uh, the Easter Seals, of Central and Southeast Ohio, uh, Greater Cleveland Food Bank, Goodwill Industries of Akron, Goodwill of Greater Cleveland, Meals on Wheels of Southwest Ohio, Northern Kentucky, Southeast Ohio Food Bank, YMCA of Greater Cleveland, and the YMCA of Northwest Ohio. So, you know, those are the the Ohio organizations that she's giving. Um, the other thing that she's given a lot of money to, I think she gave like $1.7 billion to 116 other organizations, including historically black colleges and universities. So, you know, she's a, she's, she seems to be a, a more generous shepherd of Jeff Bezos's money than he ever will be, but it's good news for those organizations. But, you know, we're still in a pretty bad spot in this country when it comes to poverty. I think 8 million Americans have dropped below the poverty line since June 27th. And, and, you know, 50 of the largest companies in America have cut a hundred thousand jobs. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> so, so when she divorced Bezos because mm-hmm. she helped him launch Amazon, she got uh, her due was half of the value of that company or roughly. Right. right. So, so she just seems and nobody needs that much money. I mean, come on, <laughs> really? do you need more than a billion? I mean, you were saying before the podcast, you know, 250 million, you know, you can live a good life on that. <laughs> right. So she just did an all fire race to, to say, nobody needs this kind of wealth. I'm going to put it where people can really use it. 
I don't know. Her motivations might be altruism down to being very petty. You know, I mean, who knows? <laughs> you, you know, I, I, I can't speak All for right. the wealthy. So it's good for her, I guess, but and good for these organizations. And there was a reason I put you as the responder on this question. <laughs> right. Then you, cut, you cut me off when I was making a point. So, uh, I, yeah, anyway. yeah. I mean, your point was not about what the story's about. Mm-hmm. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Energy Harbor is the company that first energy unloaded its nuclear plants on after spending $60 million in bribery money to get a corrupt nuclear bailout passed. Now Energy Harbor is making news for how it is treating its workers. Jane, how so? Well, the labor union that represents workers at the Perry Nuclear Plant claims that Energy Harbor is cutting their health benefits for for the employees there and and that that is in violation of a 2019 deal that allowed Energy Harbor, which was then called First Energy Solutions, to emerge from bankruptcy. Uh, This is the Utility Workers Union of America, and they released some emails. Uh, they're seeking arbitration with Energy Harbor after the company notified them that that starting next month, it wasn't going to pay into about 30 plant workers' health coverage at the same rate that it did when it was part of First Energy. So they say this, this violates that. Apparently, these um, employees that include mechanics, plant operators, and warehouse and maintenance workers would have to pay amounts ranging from an extra $61 a month for single employees to $168 more a month for family coverage. But as I said, there's a disagreement here about whether that breaks this 2019 agreement. Energy Harbor justifies the change, you know, saying that employee premiums should be calculated using the same methodology that was being used at the time. And uh, they, they said because the actuarial review involves different populations of employees, the rates are not going to be the same. All right. So blah, blah, blah. Right? So let's put this into perspective. The legislature today is going to be talking about the repeal of HB6, the nuclear bailout. We are a week away from Christmas, and this news pops up now that the workers for Energy Harbor at the nuclear plants are losing their money. You don't think there's any purpose to the timing of this story breaking right now? That Energy Harbor would stick the screws to the workers, have them go public with, oh my, we're losing our money to influence a little bit the legislature. Remember, they got that nuclear bailout without showing a single piece of evidence that they needed it. So now the legislature is getting ready to yank the money away from them. And all of a sudden we have evidence that, oh, well, our finances are bad. We're going to take money from the workers. Does it seem bogus to anybody else? Well, they're not coming in to testify on these uh, bills. So I guess this is a way to get it out in the public, right? I, I, you know, I just don't know, Chris. I mean, I don't know if there's, if it's that sinister or, or not, but it is occurring you're right. When they're dealing with House Bill 6 or maybe not dealing with it, uh, some people would argue by just, you know, looking at this bill that would delay it, um, although it would get rid of that decoupling provision that that allows First Energy um, to profit a lot more. But uh, so but anyway, if, but, if, I don't know. but if you're a legislator that has been in the pocket of First Energy all these years and you're looking for cover, to fight the repeal of HB6 or to water this down, 
this gives you some cover. You know, we, we really have to protect the workers at the nuclear plants. You know, they pay income taxes. They, they support the schools. And if you start hitting them in their pocketbook right before Christmas, oh, we just can't have that. I mean, it seems it just seems very suspicious to me that this story popped up yesterday. Um, Energy Harbor has been in existence for how long now? More than a year? Well, uh, not that long. I mean, I mean, I think it's basically the same company as First Energy Solutions. It, it changed its name after the bankruptcy thing. So, yeah, I guess about a year. But they suddenly, right now, take this move. Seems, seems questionable. It's this week in the CLE. How will Governor Mike DeWine spend the Christmas holiday and why is his message about that important? Laura Johnston, we talk about this because it's a public service. It's the idea of keeping people from behaving poorly during the holidays and spreading coronavirus. So what's he do? What's he say about how to spend the holiday? He is saying a similar thing to what he said about Thanksgiving, and he's planning to spend his holiday similarly. He's telling people, wear a mask. If you're not with someone of your household, presume that they have the coronavirus. So keep your distance and be outside whenever possible. And do not eat or drink with people who are outside members of your household. So this is kind of the John Husted model of uh, Thanksgiving that he talked about, that if you're going to get together for the holidays, be outside. Don't eat at the, at the same table with someone who doesn't live with you and and be safe that way. It'd be kind of hard to be outside on a day like today. I mean, <laughs> yeah. so he said he was going to convince my parents, persuade my parents to drive up. And like, I was like, I've got the propane heater. We can have a fire pit. And, you know, I have plenty of blankets. I think my dad is like, yeah, we can just FaceTime. Like, we'll right <laughs> <laughs> you point with that propane heater where it doesn't matter. You could be sitting within three feet of it and half of your body is ice cold and half is getting heated. Well, and I was checking the, and I know we're still quite a way away from christmas but the um the forecast was like for like 28 degrees is a high i was like yeah okay (laughs) see how that goes all right you're listening to this week in the cle that does it for today's episode come back tomorrow because there'll be a lot of news to talk about thanks jane thanks chris thanks laura thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the cle 